From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Office of the Navy's Chief Information Officer will lead a review of the department's $4 billion information technology spend. Navy CIO Aaron Weiss and Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition James Gertz write Navy and Marine Corps systems aren't, quote, fully operational with each other, the Defense Department, or our mission partners. Defense News reports the office will update the review on a, quote, rolling basis through March. A design flaw in one model of the littoral combat ship may be responsible for propulsion train breakdowns in several ships. The Navy will investigate the design of the combining gear on the 17 Freedom-class ships. Defense News reports LCS's Little Rock and Detroit have both broken down because of failures in that gear. An internal survey in the Air Force shows higher personnel satisfaction scores from more telework. Air Force Deputy Chief Information Officer Lauren Nausenberger says 61% of employees working from home approved of their information technology setup compared to 27% who work on bases. FCW reports the Air Force is working with the Defense Information Systems Agency to find duplicative functions the force can transition to DISA. President Trump's made big changes on two boards that advise the Defense Department. Sitting members of the Defense Business Board and the Defense Policy Board lost their seats, and the president gave them to supporters of his. Michael Baer is president and CEO of Dumbarton Strategies, former chair of the Defense Business Board, appointed by Ash Carter. David Walker is former Comptroller General of the United States, former member of the Defense Business Board, appointed by Mark Esper. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Michael, I start with you. What is the Defense Business Board exactly, and what does your former board and the other advisory boards do, and for whom, sir? Well, it's a group, uh, thank you, Frank, for asking. It's a terrific group of people, all volunteers. They don't get paid, and they are outside experts to advise the department on best business practices. Um, a number of years ago, the department really led the world in innovative business practices and, and uh, some great innovations occurred at the department. Today, however, the department is really trailing the, uh, the, the highly competitive business world and it has used, that is the department, has used the board for the outside expertise that comes. CEOs and others like David who have profound experience and, uh, and provide advice that the department frankly couldn't even buy. David, welcome. How did you find out about your removal and the removal of your colleagues from the board? Well, I and eight other members of the Defense Business Board received an email, I think it was on a Friday afternoon, and uh, thanking us for our service, noting that either our terms had expired or would soon to, uh, set to expire. Keep in mind that each member serves a one-year term, which can be renewed, and mine was set to expire within the next month. But it was a total surprise, and, and we have no idea why they chose to replace nine of us and not the balance of the board. And that's where I wanted to go next, David. What's historically the transition on this board look like? What, what happens when times generally expire? Do, is there a, a protocol for the transition that maybe was different this time than, than in the past? 
Well, I'll make a brief comment, and then uh, Michael may want to comment because he was the chairman and has obviously been on many, many years. It, it's normal when you have a change in administration, which we're clearly going to have, uh, for the new president and the new secretary to look at the membership of these type boards and think about what, if any, changes. What is not normal is when you have an outgoing administration to make these kinds of changes uh, within the last two months of their administration uh, and to appoint people who, in some cases, not in all cases, clearly don't meet the qualifications uh, as, as outlined for the board. Michael, what does the, uh, an ideal member of the board have in, in terms of qualifications and credentials? And what's different, in your view, about the people that are going to be on the board appointed by President Trump? These boards require a lot of work. Uh, the, in the last 12 months, the defense, defense Business Board members, including David, have done four really important pieces of research and product, which involved 750 pages of written materials. The members, David, and all of them did that, all for not pay. Um, and so the combination of being willing to sacrifice the time and energy, and most of all, having really in-depth experiences in large organizations at scale in the C-suite and in the governance uh, activities for those boards re or companies really uniquely qualified for service on this board. Um, you know, if you're going to provide advice to the world's largest business activity, the Department of Defense, at $740 billion a year, you really have to understand how large-scale enterprises function. So that's the key criteria, uh, a combination of time, availability, and experience. Um, David, Michael told Politico when this story first broke, the kind, this kind of move really will weigh heavily on, the, on people in the future and their willingness to serve on these outside advisory boards if they're going to be subjected to political loyalty tests. Do you share that sentiment, David? Well, the board needs to operate in a professional, objective, fact-based, nonpartisan, non-ideological and results-oriented fashion. And uh, I'm not sure what the criteria were that these people were appointed. Let me be clear. There are some of the people who were appointed who may well be qualified, but clearly some of the ones that were don't come close. And, and so I think it's important that it that we operate, as I mentioned, uh, you know, professional, objective, fact-based, nonpartisan, non-ideological, results-oriented. Uh, and... You know, the president and the secretary can can pick whoever they want, but they should be qualified and they should operate in accordance with that uh, set of principles. David Walker, Michael Baer, thanks very much for your time today, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. Coming next, happy birthday, Space Force. Straight ahead on Government Matters, accomplishments for year one and goals for year two and beyond. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The newest branch of the military turns one on Sunday. Among the achievements for the Space Force in its first year, doctrine documents and two bases. Caitlin Johnson's deputy director at the Aerospace Security Project the Center for Strategic and International Studies. As we wish happy birthday to the Space Force, Caitlin, what do you think the most significant uh, moves forward the force has made in its first year? Sure, so I think it's had some really great accomplishments in its first year. Um, the structural plan and uh, 
chief of space operations guidance has been particularly useful, I think, for um, understanding where the force wants to go moving forward. It has new members. As you mentioned, it has new bases. Its headquarters are in the Pentagon. Um, it's had several launches. Doctrine, I mean, it's it's had a pretty successful year for its uh, first year getting off the ground, but still some people are saying it's not moving fast enough. And that's the next issue is where where should it be moving forward? Those critics uh, would like to see the Space Force doing what that it's not doing now or hasn't done yet. I think they would like to see it finalizing its, its structure and its position within uh, the DOD. I think one really important thing that it tried to get to this year and didn't quite uh, have a success was its acquisition plan. The Space Force submitted an acquisition plan like back in May uh, to Congress, which was um, required by Congress in, the, in last year's NDAA. And after, I think, some negative feedback from Congress, they recalled the acquisition plan and have been working on it since. So something that I'm waiting for and looking for is, is how they plan to address uh, these major acquisition problems that have plagued space systems for a long time and is one of the reasons the Space Force was really founded. What was the shortcoming in the plan that Space Force submitted to Congress and what's your sense of what they're trying to rework about that plan, Caitlin? Sure. So um, a lot of the acquisition changes they were requesting to make, um, they could do on their own, but some of them did require support or change in law from Congress. And um, my sense is that they were maybe asking a little bit too much for a little bit too much freedom from congressional oversight, from other oversight within DOD, and they needed to get that balance right. In issues like that document and some of the other documents that you mentioned, what is your view on how much Space Force is growing these things organically on its own, and how much is Space Force using, uh, repurposing similar documents or similar policies from the other branches? I think a lot of it is is organic. However, nothing has been so groundbreaking that it's a huge departure than what was done in space previously by the Air Force. So we're really seeing a reaffirming of policies, a reaffirming of, of doctrine that was understood, but perhaps not stated in this formal way. There is a 99% or higher chance that one year from now, you and I will have this exact same conversation <laughs> if you're willing to participate. What do you expect to see in the second year of the Space Force? What will we talk about a year from now, Caitlin? I, I think that's also highly likely. I think the Space Force is gonna face a lot of pressure next year uh, from Congress, from public support post the Trump administration, uh, the military, has is foreseeing some declining budgets in the next couple of years and so how they prepare for that how they convince congress and the public of their usefulness and why they were you know established in the first place um, i think will be really important to be able to secure that funding so that they can move forward with their plans and about the budgets do you ex it sounds like you expect to see the space the space force having to deal with the same uh, budget flatline that the other branches are expecting, that the other branches have been talking about. Is that a, a fair estimate? I think it is. I think, you know, with competing budget priorities, when you put space up against nuclear modernization or the uh, the Navy's modernization plans. I mean, these are some hard competing priorities that Congress is going to have to sort out, and the Space Force is going to have to make its case for why they deserve the budget that they uh, they're asking for. 
of what the Space Force has accomplished so far and what it has on the docket, what you know we may see in the first quarter of 2021 or soon after, what do you think the most foundational issues are that they've really done so far, Caitlin? Foundationally, I think just the organization and, and reestablishment of, of Space Forces has been really important. Uh, they did not just take what had been, how the Air Force had organized it and recapitalized on that. They're really reorganizing and standing up three different commands. One has been stood up already, Space Operations Command for the operation of satellites. The next two that they're looking at starting up in early 2021 are Space Systems Command, which will focus on acquisition, Space Readiness and Training Command, which will focus on the people. And I think that's the next big, uh, the big step to getting the Space Force organized. We have about a minute left. We've noted on this program over the last several months as uh, personnel has started to transition into the Space yeah. Force. Can we expect to see a bigger flood of folks moving either from the Air Force to the Space Force or recruited directly into the Space Force in 2021, Caitlin? I think for sure. I also think we might even start to see plans for um, members from other uh, services transitioning into the Space Force. I have some good friends in, in the Marine Corps and uh, you know, in the Navy and Army who would be interested in joining. So I think there's there's wide interest, especially for those who are really excited about this new opportunity and for focusing on this the STEM field in, in general. Caitlin Johnson, thanks as always. Great to have you back. Thanks, Francis. Up next, planning a smooth transition at the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the Biden team needs to know to keep the Defense Department running smoothly during the transition. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. President-elect Joe Biden has made his selection for Secretary of Defense. His team started meeting with military intelligence services and other parts of the Defense Department. It's part of the transition process at DOD already underway. Frank Kendall is former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics for President Obama. He's now a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Frank, welcome. It's good to see you again. What's going on under the hood in this transition at the Defense Department? How's the Biden team undertaking learning what's happened in the department over the last four years? Uh, first of all, Francis, I'm not directly involved, but I have been talking to people who are involved both on the government side and on the uh, Biden uh, transition team side. Uh, it, it, it's going acceptably well, I think is the way I would put it. Uh, it's slower than... I think a lot of people would like from the Biden side of the house. Uh, access to information has been more difficult uh, within the government than, than uh, under a normal transition. Uh, it hasn't gotten to a point where it's a serious problem. I think as we get closer to the inauguration, it'll become even more critical that uh, information about things like the budget, about ongoing operations and so on, be transmitted more freely. And hopefully that'll happen. Uh, some of the, I think, Resistance to share information may have been because the president was contesting the election still. And hopefully that's behind us after the vote by the Electoral College and people will open up more. Uh, the, the career people in the Pentagon uh, have been ready to do this. They've done it before. They know how to do it. 
uh, they've been constrained, I think, uh, by the political environment and by the requirement to have things approved before they can share it with the transition team. So I'm still thinking now. One of the things that the transition team seems to have done is to reach out to a lot of people who have left the government who are not constrained and are able to talk freely, but only, of course, at an unclassified level. I think the, the most notable thing that I saw when I looked at the transition team that would be going into the department, the landing team, as they call them, was that, as, as you said, these are all people who know the building, they've been in the building before, they're not learning on the job. What's the value of that for the Biden team, especially given the more truncated schedule that you just talked about? Yeah, that's enormously helpful. They were already way up on the learning curve uh, before they even start. They know what questions to ask, they know who to ask them of, and uh, they know what they need to help prepare for the next administration. So that, that, that part uh, simplifies things enormously over having a team which does not have that kind of experience. So many of those people are coming back and talking to people in positions that they've held before, for example, or at least were served on the staff of. So I, that helps a great deal, but it doesn't give them the specifics they need. Uh, one great example of that is the details of the budget. One of the things that the new administration will have to do is get a 22 budget over to the Hill within a couple of months. And so the starting point for that, what, what they're given to work from to build their own budget uh, is very, very important. And that's a lot, 2,500 pages basically of, of data that they have to go through. So getting access to that I think is very important. Uh, they're also, on, on the 20th of January, people take over responsibility for all the ongoing operations, uh, for everything that's being done about every threat that's out there, whether it's a terrorist threat, a cyber threat, uh, you know, anything else. So they need to be prepared. Uh, the secretary in particular needs to be prepared the moment that he comes in. Uh, hopefully they'll be able to bring in some additional people besides that, uh, not necessarily confirm people, that will be able to help with that uh, taking over initially. And I would expect that some people will probably stay, a very small number are likely to stay, uh, these to help for the next first few months until additional people come on board. You talked about the budget, Frank, and the uh, Trump administration has released details on a $759 billion budget construct for fiscal 2022. Is that constructive or not helpful to have that available to the transition team and out in the public? Um, I don't think it matters a great deal. I think it may be a uh, political statement to make because it's probably expected that you won't see quite that number coming out of the Biden administration. Um, you know, it's just, when he was running for uh, president, uh, then Vice President Biden was clear that he wasn't going to take massive cuts in defense, uh, but he's not going to go for massive increases either. So uh, whatever is available to work from will be helpful. It's more about the details, I think, than it is about the total number. And the more difficult they make the job for the new team of getting to the actual number this administration will use, the harder it's going to be. Uh, it, I cannot overemphasize how much detailed work goes into putting a budget together. It's a, it's a massive undertaking, and normally it takes several months at the Secretary of Defense level, after the services have spent several months working on their own budgets. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not something that's easy to do in a couple of years. And you have people on the transition team, as you said, who got a lot of experience with that. And so they can dig in very quickly and, and understand all the relationships between different accounts, um, what, what the trade-offs can be. But again, the new team's going to have to look at that very quickly. And the more they can do to get ahead of the game, the better. About a minute left, Frank, and we're discussing what's happening today to January 20th. What are the best things that uh, President 
at that point, President Biden's team can do from January 20th, people use the first 100 days construct, six months into the future, to make sure that they are ready to be hands-on in those jobs that they're taking over on January 20th? Yeah, my understanding, and I'm not part of this, is that that's happening. That they're uh, looking at the commitments that the uh, then-Vice President made before he was President-elect. They're looking at uh, the, the problems that need to be addressed. They're looking at his priorities as he articulated them. And they're thinking about, you know, what steps need to be taken on the first day, the second day, and so on. Uh, as you said, there's a very high-quality, very experienced team working this. Uh, and they are focused uh, very much on preparing for the administration to take office. Uh, there's going to be a lot to do. There's a lot to tee up. There are, it's, it's unfortunate that this administration in its closing weeks is trying to do things that uh, will probably have to be reversed. That, that's futile, and it just creates more work for the, for the incoming team. Uh, I've been through a couple of transitions on the government side. I've never been on one on the uh, incoming side. But in the past, it, it's always been uh, very collaborative, uh, very professional, very open, uh, with a real understanding that the people on the way out are going out and the people coming in are going to be in. And that happens in a flash. So anything that can be done to, you know, help those people get ready to do their jobs is a good thing. Uh, it's about national security. There's no politics involved here. It shouldn't be. This is about, you know, the ability of the new team to deal with the threats to this country and the day they take office. And everybody should be in favor of uh, making that transition as smooth and as effective as possible. Frank Kendall, always grateful for your insight. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Francis. Good to be with you as always. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our programs by getting our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. Sunday morning, I hope you'll join me for a television-exclusive conversation with the administrator of the General Services Administration, Emily Murphy. That's coming Sunday morning at 10.30, December 20th on ABC7. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.